0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52 for our Old Testament scripture reading. So fascinating, isn't it, that over the past several weeks that Paul keeps directing our attention in 2 Corinthians chapters 5 and 6 to this particular section of Isaiah. This morning we will read verses 1 and 2. And then jump down to verses 11 and 12 as this forms part of the backdrop uh, to the passage we'll consider in our New Testament lesson today. Isaiah chapter 52 beginning in verse 1, awake, awake, put on your strength of Zion, put on your beautiful garments O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself off from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem, loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. Verse eleven Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall go, for you shall not go out in haste. You shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you. The Lord, the God of Israel, will be your rear guard. Now turn with me, if you will, to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We'll give our attention to chapter 6, verses 14, and read through chapter 7, verse 1. This forms the pinnacle of Paul's letter to Corinth. This is the creamy nougat at the center of an already. Uh, rich candy bar. Here Paul will cite nearly a dozen different Old Testament texts to speak of the centrality of the promises that we have from God through Christ our Savior and what that requires of us as we walk as pilgrims in this barren wilderness. Do not be unequally yoked with the unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God has said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you. You shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord God Almighty. And since we have these promises, since we possess these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion the fear of God. This is God's holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you that you have given your word to us infallible and errant, sufficient for our salvation and authoritative and clear, telling us what it is that we need to do and to believe. So we ask this morning that you would so attune our hearts to hear what you have to say that we might respond in faith. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Perhaps by a show of hands, I'd like you to raise your hand. Uh, how many of you uh, love a good meal? Yeah. I give examples of some, uh, some delicacy, delicacies that I've encountered uh, uh, near and far. How many of you all love a good peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich? Apparently, it's a thing in St. Louis. That's why I'll never go back. How about bologna and jelly? How about a, a cereal with Mountain Dew instead of milk? Sounds like something a college student would have. How about ice cream and clam juice? It's pretty disgusting. It's not just distasteful. It's, you would say, this is unclean, this is gross. Why would he even uh, ruin my, my, my thought patterns with such analogies? Uh, note that the items in themselves, for the most part, aren't uh, necessarily bad. It's not like uh, everybody here hates bologna or everybody here hates peanut butter it's the combination of these things. It's the relationship between the two that makes that particular item so distasteful. That's why you'll never see any of these items uh, on the menu uh, at IHOP or Waffle House. What we see is that the Lord gives us particular word pictures to help us understand the nature of holiness. And here we're given word pictures in the Old Testament to portray Unclean, distasteful, in a word we might say, sinful relationships. Relationships that do not accord with a life of holiness. And so what we see in this morning's passage, Paul uses these Old Testament images to tell us something about the nature of Christian holiness. What does it mean to walk in holiness? Particularly as we relate to others who profess the name of Christ. We'll consider three particular vantage points in this section of Scripture this morning. First, we'll consider the matter of the yoke. You'll see there in verses 14 to 16. Then we'll consider the matter of the temple. The latter half of verse 16 through verse 18. And finally, we'll consider that of holiness in chapter 7, verse 1. So a lot of imagery here. That of yoke. Uh, a yoke. Uh, and then that of a temple. And then finally, a discussion of holiness. Paul begins by saying here a phrase that I think many of us are familiar with who have grown up in church circles. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And yet... The, the context, the contours behind it are perhaps somewhat foreign to many of us in the 21st century. What Paul is doing here is he is alluding to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, Deuteronomy, the great law code, the great ethical manual for the people of God under the old covenant. Uh, Moses, in one of his farewell sermons, tells the people of God this that you shall not plow an ox and a donkey. Together side by side. Remember, ancient Israel is a, is a farming uh, nation, an agrarian people. And so the Lord stoops to speak to his people using analogies that they would understand. When we speak of equal yoking, we talk about having two types of cattle yoked together side by side so they can do what? So that they can plow a field in a straight line, so that it could lead to an abundance of harvest, a fruitful time of farming. What would happen if you had a giant uh, uh, um, ox on one side of the yoke and then you had, you know, a pony on the other side. What happens when that yoke is mismatched? You'll see that the stronger ends up overturning the weaker and uh, you're not going to get straight lines. You'll see um, might look like crop circles. These crooked lines, trampled fields, a destroyed harvest. That's maybe perhaps we can use a modern day equivalent thinking of linking together a unicycle to a Harley-Davidson. What's going to happen out on the open road once the Harley cranks it up to 70. The guy on the unicycle is going to crash and burn. It's going to lead to his demise. It's going to lead to death. Somebody's going to get killed, and it's going to be rather messy. Well, when you look at the broader context of Deuteronomy chapter 22, and and, and Paul is uh, alluding to Deuteronomy 22.10, Moses, under inspiration of the Spirit, gives these analogies You shall not plow an ox and a donkey together. You shall not thread wool and linens together. You shall not sow two different kinds of seed in the same field. Analogies that they would understand, right? Thou shalt not eat a peanut butter and mayonnaise sandwich. It doesn't work, it doesn't fit. But then what's interesting is then Paul goes on, or I'm sorry, Moses in Deuteronomy 22 goes on to give a litany of sexual sins that Israel is not. To perform. In other words, what Moses is doing, this is Moses is a great preacher, is beginning with uh, an illustration in daily life and now applying to the physical order, the natural order of things, provides a picture for what the moral order of the people of God ought to look like. And so, a scandalous sexual, sexual relationship. It's much like yoking together a Harley and a unicycle. Might be fun for a time, but somebody's going to get hurt. It's an image as grotesque as ice cream and clam juice. It's not only distasteful, it is unholy. The Old Testament recognizes these word pictures that are given. If you look at Ezra chapter 9, verse 12, or Nehemiah 13, 25, they use the language of that mismatched coupling of the ox and the donkey together to become a picture of interfaith marriages. When Israel comes back from uh, Babylon from their time in exile, it turns out a lot of them had married pagan women. And the concern that Ezra and Nehemiah have is not that they're marrying somebody outside their race. That is a foreign imposition on the text. The idea is that they are marrying somebody outside the covenant. They are marrying unbelievers. And that's why uh, uh, Nehemiah in particular ends, and and Ezra as well, with this exhortation not to be yoked with unbelievers. It's likened to cross-breeding breeding two different types of seed in the same field, it's going to yield a disastrous consequence for the harvest. It's going to, to, to reap an abundance of confusion. Perhaps one form of fruit is going to choke out the other. And so it is here that if you yoke yourselves as a believer with an unbeliever in marriage, it destroys a life of fruitfulness and godliness. We might ask ourselves, what happens when a, when a believer marries an unbeliever? The Old Testament gives us plenty of examples. Perhaps top on our list is look what happened with Solomon. Read the first 10, 11 chapters of 1 Kings. Here's a man who loves the Lord. Here's a man whom the Lord has set apart from birth and has protected him from all harm. Here's a man who, when he is asked by the Lord himself, What do you want? Ask of me and I'll give it to you. And and Solomon does not ask for riches, he does not ask for fame. For notoriety, what does he ask for? He asks for a heart of wisdom. And the Lord blesses this. because you've asked for wisdom, I'll give you, I'll bestow upon you all these other things. And here's the man who begins the process of constructing a temple for the Lord, as the Lord had promised, as a demonstration of Solomon's own love for his Savior. And yet, what is it that happens? over the course of his life, he begins to make political alliances and in these interfaith marriages. He doesn't marry just one or two or three or four different wives. He marries what, six, 700 wives, 300 concubines to boot. And what are we told by the end of his life? Here's a man whose pagan wives have turned his heart from the Lord. Here's a man who's the wisest man on the face of the earth, and even he could not escape the problem of an interfaith marriage. He's been unequally yoked and led astray. And it led to his, his apostasy and the undoing of the kingdom. We need to remember that when Scripture speaks of holiness, it means more than simply matters of cleanliness. Cleanliness. Perhaps many of us are familiar with the phrase, cleanliness is next to godliness. might be a useful phrase if you're teaching your kids to wash their hands before a meal, but unfortunately, that passage is not found anywhere in Scripture, so you should probably remind them of that. might work in a cracker barrel, but not in the pages of Scripture. When we see the language of holiness, that is a language meaning to be set apart. Even in the creation of the world, we're given a picture of what holiness looks like. Uh, and what, what is it that the Lord does when, when, he, when He calls forth the light out of darkness? What is, it, what is it that He does? He separates the light from the darkness. He separates the sky from the sea. He separates the sea from the land. And what does He do? He calls it good. That language there of separation is the root word that we have there for holiness. All the, the, the litany, the uh, the bucket list you see in the Old Testament of all those unclean animals that we go, What what, what do we make of those particular animals. Most of those animals are animals that transgress that threefold cosmology that we're given in Genesis 1 of the sky, the land, and the sea. What are snakes? Well, uh, they're, they're amphibians. They're, they're something like creatures, but are, are they in the sea? No, they're on the land. What about an ostrich? Well, an ostrich is a bird. It should be flying uh, in the sky, but where do you often find an ostrich? It's, it's big and fat. It could barely fly. It's, it's, it's straddling the, the horizon between the, the, the sky uh, and the land. What we have are pictures of uncleanness, something that, 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 that muddies the water, something that fails to make that proper distinction, something that fails to live within the proper boundaries for which they have been created. And so to be unholy is to transgress those proper boundaries. And so what the Lord is simply doing in the Old Testament, and only this helps you to understand the Old Testament better, but the imagery that the Lord gives under the Old Covenant gives the picture uh, to Israel of what holiness looks like so that they can have some type of visual, even an agrarian imagery in front of them to know how it is that they should order themselves morally. So if you're engaging in different types of sexual deviant practices, what does it look like in the moral sphere? Well, it looks like somebody who has yoked themselves uh, with, with a different, a different animal. Uh, it's like sowing two different types of seed in the same land. It gives a picture of disarray. There's nothing beautiful about it. What we need to see is that holiness points to a natural beauty that the Lord Himself has established. That's why it talks about worshiping the Lord in the splendor and the beauty of holiness. To recognize those distinctions in the moral sphere that the Lord Himself has ordained. And so what Paul is saying here is if you yoke yourself unequally with an unbeliever, it will destroy the harvest of godliness in your life. What partnership has an ox and a donkey together? What can they accomplish together, really? What union hath vanilla ice cream and clam juice? What friendship has Christ and Satan? What does a believer have with an unbeliever? What does God's temple have with the idols? This is the litany of questions. Paul begins to probe and to ask the, the church of Corinth to reflect upon. In other words, what is being depicted here is an exclusive relationship. In other words, that there are certain human friendships that will destroy your walk with Christ. And the most important thing that we have, the most important thing that we are called to walk in is holiness. That's why Christ himself says, if you if you say you love me, but you love your father, your mother, your mother, your brother, your sister, even your own life also more so, you cannot be my disciple. You have failed to recognize the importance of holiness. The first and greatest commandment consists in what? That you shall love the Lord your God with all your, whole, your, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It is not that God will be a close second on the list. It is God first, and everything else takes a distant second. So Paul places a very practical situation that the church of Corinth is dealing with within the broader scope of salvation history. The great promise that the Lord Himself who is holy has stooped to save sinners, but now He calls sinners to holiness. That we might dwell with Him all the days of our life. And so now the imagery shifts from that of the farmland with the yokes The agrarian imagery that Paul has spoken of now to the image of the temple. If you see here in verses 16 to 18, we won't have time to go through all of them, but Paul stitches together about a half dozen different Old Testament quotes. He's citing here from Leviticus, from 2 Samuel, from Isaiah, and from Ezekiel, all of them dwelling upon a single theme, a thread that runs through the whole totality of Scripture. And that concerns this, the dwelling place of God and the holiness that He requires of His people. Among the most quoted passages we find in the Old Testament is that very promise where the Lord says, I will make My dwelling place with you to be your God, and you shall be My people. In other words, just as Paul is warning us not to be mismated with unbelievers, he grounds his reasoning here why should we not do that? Paul's response is very simple. Because you already belong to somebody else. Just as we're told in the Exodus, the whole of salvation history is really summed up. The Ten Commandments does not begin with you shall have no other gods before me. How does it begin? I'm the Lord your God who has brought you out of slavery. I'm the Lord your God who has redeemed you and brought you out of bondage. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. I've delivered you and brought you to myself. Why would you pursue these lesser things, these gods that are, in fact, not gods? Why would you exchange the truth of God for a lie? Why would you worship the image for the creator? Why would you erect a golden calf and say, this is he who has brought us out of Egypt, when you're the one who just made the golden calf, Why do you keep looking to these lesser goods rather than to him who is invisible, he who has made all things, and he who does all things for your good, he who dwells in the splendor and beauty of holiness? And so we're called not to defile ourselves with corrupt practices. We're called to holy living. And so those interfaith marriages of believers being unequally yoked with unbelievers leads to idolatry and perhaps even gross sexual perversions. Again, this is not a critique of interracial marriages. That is not what is in the purview of Scripture at all. It's marrying those within the covenant. The Lord Himself says, you shall separate yourself from unbelievers and you shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall not blend yourself in like them, like two different types of cloth. You shall not yoke yourselves to them like an ox with a donkey. Rather, you shall learn to make those proper distinctions, and you shall abide by them. That is the essence of holiness. Paul has already written the church of Corinth earlier in chapter 15 saying this, the bad company corrupts good morals. What Paul is saying is you're to be a distinct people. With a common confession, what unites us is not our socioeconomic status or our race or our gender. Rather, what binds us all is a common faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're called to be a distinct people, and we are to separate ourselves from the rest of the world in a certain sense, so that we should not become like them. Just as the Lord Himself promises in these litany of texts, He says, I will be as a father to you, O Israel. I will be with you. Just as I dwelt with Israel, so shall I also dwell with you. And if you look at the the proof text that Paul is citing, the promise extends not just to wayward Jews, but also extends to the Gentiles to whom the Gospel has come. Because the Gospel comes now without distinction. First to the Jew and then to the Gentile, that all who put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ can partake of this holiness. It is a holiness that is received by faith. As we are given the Spirit who now works in us and causes us to walk a life of godliness and integrity. And so Paul says here, the opening verse of chapter 7, because we possess these particular promises, In other words, in light of the litany of all these Old Testament passages that he's just rattled off here, all these passages that are tucked away deep in the law and the prophets, he says all these promises find their hope and source in one thing. Now that the new covenant has come, they find their source in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you recall, chapter 1 of this letter, all of God's promises find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. All who belong to Christ are now made recipients of these promises. So now, God promises to be your God. Now He vows that you shall be His people. We are no longer aliens and strangers as Ephesians 2 tells us. But now we are recipients and we have been brought near and made sons and daughters, adopted by the Most High God who stoops to shower us with His loving kindness and tender mercy because we've been united to His Son by faith. So because we have these promises, on the basis of these promises, that God has promised to be our God, how should we respond to such good news? Paul says here, chapter 7, verse 1, "...therefore let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit." In other words, because God has promised to be our God, We are to be holy in everything we do. And that extends to our thought life and our action, but it also extends to our relationships. The very fabric of our social interactions. There can be nothing that pollutes God's dwelling place, not even our deepest and most abiding friendships. That's why we have to take our most serious friendships seriously particularly with the estate of marriage, for that very reason. And so we have to ask ourselves, how should we then live? What's the implication that we have for us here in the 21st century? I think we have three particular principles that we need to keep in mind so that we don't go off the track. There are certain ways in which you can read this. and You really just go off the deep end. But then there are certain ways in which we just don't go far enough. So I think there are three principles to keep in mind to help us think through what does holiness look like in our particular relationships in this day and age. Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that Paul does not, is not saying that you cannot be friends with unbelievers. It's actually why I had that as the reading of the law this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, I wrote to you earlier uh, not to associate with sexually immoral people, but let me clarify. I'm telling you, this does, I'm not talking about with unbelievers, because if that was the case, if you, if you couldn't uh, uh, be friends or associate with anybody who was an idolater or a murderer or a slander, you wouldn't be, you'd have to become a hermit. You'd have to go out of the world altogether, because guess what? Paul has a robust doctrine of sin. He knows that we are all sinners. So Paul doesn't want us to go that far off the deep end where, you know, it Every friend you've had in high school is not a believer. You just call them and say, that's it. <laughs> you know, either you turn to faith in Christ, or we can't be friends anymore. That is not the right way to go. Well, There's a second principle that we have to keep in mind, however. That there are certain kinds of relationships with believers that are off limits. That, those relationships are not up for debate. And marriage is one of those examples. A believer is not allowed to marry an unbeliever. Case closed. In fact, uh, when uh, Corinth, in the previous letter, they based, apparently had written Paul a letter asking for uh, advice and help and seeking to pursue marriage. Like, what are the principles that we need to have as believers in, 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 in pursuing romantic relationships? And Paul gives only one principle there in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, You know what? Believers, you are allowed to marry. You're free. You are free to marry with this one caveat, that you can only marry in the Lord. In other words, you're not to marry with an unbeliever. You know, So often we want to apply this passage solely to the questions of dating. You know, you hear that phrase, don't be unequally yoked. And I think it's a valid application because what is the purpose of dating? What's the direction that that dating should be leading you towards to at least be considering those things? And so the question of whether or not this person is a believer is one of the the top question you need to be asking on the list. And it it becomes a non-starter. There's really no room for missionary dating in the kingdom of Christ. It it leads you on that path, just like uniting a Harley with a unicycle. It's going to get you in trouble, apart from the Lord's own kindness in response to our own ignorance. And in and, and, and our own stupidity, uh, uh, for for having tried that. But we need to recognize the context within which this letter is being written. Paul hasn't just simply completely changed topics. If you notice, Paul hasn't been talking about oh, what does it look like to date other Christians. That hasn't been the focus of Paul's letter in Second Corinthians. Rather, what is his focus? It's the relationship you hold with other professing believers who are trying to lead you astray, who are treating you to embrace a false gospel. And that leads us to our third category, and this is Paul's driving focus, that there are some relationships with professing believers that are even off limits. Paul uses the categories in this letter of hypocrites and false teachers. Those who claim the name of Christ and yet are trying to lure you away from the Lord. Again, as Paul had already written in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, don't associate with the sexually immoral. The sexually immoral, he says, rather, what do I mean? He says, "I, I don't mean unbelievers. I mean those believers who are engaging in illicit sexual activity. In fact, he goes on in the very next verse, First Corinthians 5:11. says, "I'm writing you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother." In other words, anyone who calls himself a Christian who is yet guilty of sexual immorality, or greed or idolatry, of reviling that's a, 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 an old-fashioned word for verbal abusiveness, a drunkard, a swindler, do not even as much as eat with him you see that Paul is actually uh, equating that the question of being unequally yoked, not simply to the question of marrying. He's not even simply saying, don't marry an unbeliever, though that's true. He says, don't even as much as eat with them. We know how, we, we're starting to see how difficult the cost of discipleship really is when we look at the real terms for holiness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul says this, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. The, the, the lazy one who's not providing for their family. And not in accord with the tradition that you've received from us. See, now we're starting to get closer to Paul's point. That when, when it comes to people who name the name of Christ and yet they are denying Christ either in doctrine or in their lifestyle? You're not to associate with them. Why? Bad company corrupts good morals. This is for your own sake that you too might not become corrupted. The point here that Paul has been addressing with the church of Corinth is that they have been fraternizing with false teachers who are leading them astray. That's what we saw in verses 11 to 13 of chapter 6 last week. Open your hearts to us. Why are your hearts so closed off? We've done nothing to harm you, and yet you're listening to the slander and lies of those who would try to lure you away to embrace another teaching See, there are men who name the name of Christ, yet who are yoking false doctrine around the necks of Corinthian congregants and sending them on the fast track to destruction. Paul's point is you need to extricate yourself from those relationships, from those hypocrites and false teachers, men who are training you to boast in outward appearance as we saw in chapter 5 rather than to boast in what God has done in Christ. And as you look at those quotations, and I encourage you to look, if you have a study Bible, to note the Old Testament references that Paul is citing, to to look at the broader context of those passages this week, you see over and over again this repeated call to holiness that Israel must extricate herself, not just from the pagan nations, but the call even under men such as Isaiah, Jeremiah, that of Ezekiel, and Leviticus, is that you should extricate yourself not just from the pagan nations, but from fellow Israelites who would have you compromise your walk and integrity with the Lord, even if that fellow believer happens to be your own pastor. That's as serious as it is. That is as serious as it gets. You think of Deuteronomy chapter 13, where, where Moses lays out this principle very clearly. He says, if even a prophet comes up to you and says, let us pursue other gods. You might even say, if even your pastor says, let us go and pursue other deities, what is your response? You are not to listen to him. That's why even in our membership vows, the fifth membership vow that we've affirmed in joining this church is what? That you shall submit in the Lord to its church and its government. There's no room for tyranny in the kingdom of Christ. We have but one king. That king is the Lord Jesus himself. And if anybody seeks to sway you from devotion to your Savior, you're to cut yourself off. From that relationship. If your brother, as Moses says, or one of your children, even if the wife you embrace as your friend says, Hey, let us go pursue other gods. Moses tells Israel, You shall not yield to them and you shall not pity them. For what will befall them if they do not repent? Christ himself says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yea, his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. That is the task of discipleship. It is a radical call to holiness, not just in our personal piety, but in our relationships as we think, what does it look like to relate with unbelievers who are living in sin as we try to seek to call them to repentance? If they are influencing you to such a degree that they are leading you away, you need to cut yourself off from that relationship. But not just with respect to unbelievers but also believers the things that they're saying are causing you to stray and to lose your love for the Lord which is more important what would it profit a man to gain all the friends he could ever want on Facebook and still yet forfeit his soul that is what is at stake here And this is how the holiness of God is perfected. It is by uh, uh, how holiness in our lives is perfected. It's perfected by fearing God. To recognize the demands He makes of His people and to walk in His ways no matter what the cost. Even if it means losing my closest friend, even if it means losing my boyfriend or girlfriend, even if it means losing my job promotion, my status in the community. Even my own status in the local congregation, which is most important above all things is the pursuit, the knowledge of Christ, and holiness, a holiness without which none will see the Lord. see the most important friendship that we have is with the one who laid down his life for his friends and now he calls us to do the same for him. It' be much easier to die you know um, a quick Noble death out in the parking lot at, at a fiery stake. Um, somebody says, you know, uh, d- deny the faith or, or or perish. I think many of us would, would at least like to think that w- the decision would be easy. I think it's much more difficult in the day in and day out where you feel the constant peer pressure that simply will not relent. The constant call is to compromise the faith here and there. And here we were reminded of the radical holiness. Do not let any of your relationships cause you to turn from the Lord. Scripture's not calling us to be suspicious of our friends, but to make sure that we are not allowing the opinions of our friends sway us from devotion to Christ. Brother, since we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word, and we ask that you grant us the wisdom and the courage to walk in holiness, that we might love you and serve you all of our days. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.